0: Hey everyone, I'm Janet B. I'm recovered from compulsive eating and bulimia. Happy to see everyone, especially the new people from New Jersey. Um, So tonight we are going to be talking about the story, Dr. Bob's Nightmare, just a very brief background. Dr. Bob was one of the two co-founders of Alcoholics Anonymous, the other one being Bill Wilson, whose story opens up the big book with Bill's story. So after the text section there, the first section of personal stories um, begins with Dr. Bob's. So if you have a big book, um, we are on page 171. And I'm just gonna point out the things that I think are kind of relevant and and helpful. Um, So he starts out by saying, I was born in a small New England village of about 7,000 souls. And he goes on to say, everything was fine. His parents were fine. The town was fine. They were moral, good. He had a good childhood. And I think this is really important because it says a couple things. One, that a good environment doesn't guarantee sobriety. So all of us, if we have kids who are messing up, can stop beating ourselves up and say, if we'd been better moms, they wouldn't be Drinking, drugging, not making straight A's, not going to med school, whatever they're not doing that's on our agendas. Um, But I think more important is he became an alcoholic and he had a good childhood. But I think most of us are more apt to say, well, the reason I'm a compulsive eater is because, and we usually blame someone and it's usually our parents. And um, just- in the chapter, Freedom from Bondage on page 544, the author says, um, I, am the, I am the result of the way I reacted to what happened to me as a child. So again, it's always on us, are we gonna forgive? Or are we going to blame them? But what, the fact that I'm an addict has nothing to do with how I was raised. It has to do with the way I lived my life. And he'll actually continue and talk about that because on page 172, he says, I was the only child which perhaps engendered the selfishness which played an important part in bringing on my alcoholism. Now, again, if we are only children or we only have one child, we shouldn't go saying, oh my gosh, that's ripe for alcoholism. No, he doesn't say it's the only child part. He says it's the selfishness part, and later on the page he really digs in and defines it. He says my whole life seems to be centered around doing what I wanted to do without regard for the rights wishes or privileges of anyone else, a state of mind which became more and more predominant as the years passed. Well that's interesting. We always talk about this illness as being progressive, but we usually think of it in terms of food, right? Our binges get worse and worse. But he's talking about probably even before the binging, his selfishness and self-centeredness got worse and worse. And we know that in the text section, um, it's chapter five page, give me five seconds. page 62, our text tells us that selfishness and self-centeredness, that we think is the root of our trouble. So Dr. Bob was right on. Selfishness and self-centeredness is the root. Now, I actually drew a little picture of a tree in my big book and I drew roots under the tree and I wrote like selfish and self-centered. The thing about roots is you don't see them. So we can be very good at hiding our selfishness and our self-centeredness. Don't always see the roots, but that's what feeds this illness. But on a tree, you see the fruit. And so I drew three little circles like apples. And in one, I wrote resentment, in one, I wrote fear. And in the last one, I wrote harms to others, harms. That's the fruit of this illness. So there's Dr. Bob saying he was selfish and self-centered. And you can even see it by the example he gave. He said, my parents made me go to church and basically I'll show them. I decided when I was old enough, I would never go to church. Interesting, turns us back on God, but he makes an exception, except when circumstances made it seem unwise to absent myself. So basically he was using church right? Oh, I'll go to church if, you know, so-and-so will be mad at me for not showing up, or if it'll look good for me and help me get a good job if my boss sees me going to church. So it made me think, right? Something we should ask ourselves, do we use our religion? Do we use God? Do we ignore God except when we want to treat him like a genie in the bottle? Like God, Things aren't working out too well. So uh, you come down and make everything good again. You know, using God doesn't work. So again, Dr. Bob talks about the progression of his selfishness. And he says through college, through medical school, he was drinking. And something I noticed this round, I never really thought about before on page 174, it says that his father, when he was in college, made a long journey in the vain endeavor to get me straightened out, but it had little effect. And I think about his, um, his dad, who really loved on him, but um, I believe died before he got sober. I'm not sure, but Dr. Bob was pretty old when he got sober. And it made me think of, you know, times we might do something for people out of love and never see the results. You know, but imagine if Dr. Bob's dad had said, I'm not going to try and help my son. You know, it's like, I'm not seeing any results here. None of us would be here. We'd all be like watching Friends reruns or something. Um, but so we love anyway. We do anyway, even if we may not see the results. Um And so there he is, he becomes a doctor, but on the bottom of 174, he says, by this time um, I was beginning to pay very dearly physically and in hope of relief, voluntarily incarcerated myself at least a dozen times in one of the local sanitariums. Okay, this is a guy who wanted to get better. I mean, imagine six times he and he's a doctor, so people knew him. He said, "I need to be locked up because I just can't stop this." So he had a desire to stop, and he was willing to go to great lengths. Um, but again, if I'm willing to go to any lengths to um, get rid of my diabetes, I'm willing. To, I realize I have it. I'm willing to go to any lengths And someone says, great, take penicillin. I'm not going to get any better because penicillin doesn't do a thing for diabetes. So there's Dr. Bob, desperate to get better, locking himself up. But what did he do? He did the same. He did what any good addict would do. He got his friends to smuggle alcohol in for him or he'd steal the alcohol in the building. So he got worse. So he's in rehab getting worse. Um, And it reminds me of something I heard someone say at an OA convention a while ago, she put herself in a rehab for compulsive eating. And then she sent herself a candy gram. I mean, if we want it, we're going to get it. Or I can say in a better way, if the illness tells us we are going to have it, we have no say about it. You know, unless we are safe and protected by God, we have no choice when it comes to food. So there's Dr. Bob not getting better. And again, his dad's trying to help him. His dad sends a doctor out from his hometown and um, he's okay for a bit, but then prohibition starts, the country's going dry. So he says, I can get drunk now because you know in a month when prohibition starts that means like it was illegal to drink for the in the whole country um he said i'll just wait because then i won't be able to get it um well of course you know there were bootleggers he was able to get it anyway but it reminds me of kind of an anti-recovery principle that i know i have been guilty of not not now but in the past when i was binging and that's um I'll start tomorrow, right? So here is Dr. Bob. I'll start when prohibition starts. Or for me, it was, I'll start Monday, the first of the month, the first of the year. I'll start tomorrow. And what that really is, is that's making thinking my cure is my pillow. That if I put my head on it for seven hours, I'm suddenly going to be cured, right? You know, I think they have, Commercials for a miracle pillow, that would be a true miracle pillow. Seven hours cured. But of course, it didn't work for Dr. Bob and it didn't work for me either, guys. So here he is, and he goes on like this drinking, passing out at home, going to work just so he could be there long enough to keep his job and earn money to drink. And then, um, He kept this up for 17 years, 17 years. And during this time, he says on page 177, I used to promise my wife, my friends, and my children that I would drink no more, promises which seldom kept me sober even through the day, though I was very sincere when I made them. Again, he was sincere, he had a desire. But desire doesn't do it. Imagine someone who has cancer going to their wife, their friends and their children and saying, I promise you, my cancer cells will not keep multiplying. Well, we would say, you know, you know, um, it would be heartbreaking, right? Because we would know that person had zero power to make their cancer cells stop multiplying. And Dr. Bob had zero power to make himself stop drinking. And I had zero power to make myself stop binging. So he went on like this and he found um, page 178. He talks about a group of people he found and he says, they attracted me because of their seeming poise, health, and happiness. Um, So this was the Oxford group. This was a Christian spiritual group that just helped people with different problems. And so he was attracted by their poise. So that's kind of a self-confidence, but not based on pride. It's based on confidence that God's got my back and God's taking care of me. So I can be comfortable in any situation. Health, Now, again, this isn't saying that if you've got bronchitis, it means you're off track spiritually, but generally we exude health and happiness. So that's what these people had. And he said, they had great freedom from embarrassment. They were at ease on all occasions and appeared healthy, but most of all, they seemed happy. So again, that's a a trait that we should have in recovery, that people should look at us and not say, oh my gosh, I know she's in recovery, but she looks like so sad, like all this work she's doing to help others and stay absent and is dragging her down. No, we're supposed to be happy and not fake happy, like real happy. That's a fruit of doing this program. So Dr. Bob, He's no dummy. He says, you know, he was ill at ease. His health was at the breaking point. He was thoroughly miserable. And he said, I sensed they had something I didn't have from which I might profit. And I learned it was something of a spiritual nature, which didn't appeal to me very much. So he was honest. It's like, okay, he sees they're happy, healthy, poised. And it's the result of some spiritual work. And he's like, okay, I don't like it. But he said, I thought it could do no harm. So he gave the matter time and study for two and a half years, but still got drunk every night. And isn't that a lot of us? I mean, I remember I was reading um, this book, The Varieties of Spiritual Experience, which is a book that a lot of the founders of AA read um, while I was binging, you know, it was like, again, If I had cancer and I'm reading a manual on, you know, how chemotherapy works, but I'm not injecting the chemo, I'm not going to get better. So he was reading about it. And isn't that this why some of us, me included, used to say, gosh, I, you know, I'm so religious. I have such a great relationship with God. I don't understand why I'm binging. Um, For me, someone actually said to me once, If you have such a great relationship with God, then how come you're still binging? And I couldn't answer. And I had to admit, maybe that relationship wasn't as good as I thought. So here was Dr. Bob. He was reading about it. He was talking about it. Um, To his credit, it didn't appeal to him, but he did it anyway because he just felt hopeless. Um, But again, no real surrender. And he says... He gives credit to his wife. How her, He says, how my wife kept her faith and courage during all those years, I'll never know, but she did. If she had not, I know I would have been dead a long time ago. She had courage, right? Um, the word courage always makes me think of the Wizard of Oz and the Cowardly Lion, right? So what did he do? He continued on to Oz, even though he had fear and he had friends that propped him up when things got difficult. So in recovery, we often need courage. Um, we need to keep going even when it's scary and hard. And hopefully, we have friends to you know help prop us up along the yellow brick road. But then we say he says his wife's faith kept him alive. Well, how come? What's the nexus? What's the correlation there? Um, And again, we've talked about this before, that faith actually does something in the spiritual world. Faith is the currency in the spiritual world. I can't hand God a $20 bill and say, okay, listen to my prayers. But my faith, my prayers, that's my communication with him. That's the currency. Not that it's like transactional, that if I give God, you know, X number of minutes or hours in prayer, he owes me, but that's how I contact him. And so his wife had faith, she had trust. And so what happened, maybe it's her faith um, or maybe the point that when Dr. Bob was going to these Oxford group meetings, at one time he said, they were in this woman, Henrietta Cyberling's house. And one time he said, guys, I have like this confession to make. And he said, I'm an alcoholic. And, you know, they might've been chuckling behind their hands a little bit. It's like, okay, Bob, tell us something we don't already know. They all knew he was an alcoholic. Um, And Henrietta, I believe is the one who said, you know, we'll pray for you. And they they were praying for him. And I'm gonna flip back a couple pages and we're gonna see what the results of that prayer was. So, back in the chapter, A Vision for You, on page 155, um, this is like the meeting that changed the world. So, there's Bill Wilson, you know, in the town where Dr. Bob lives on a business trip. He didn't live there. He was there, newly sober. His business deal had like gone down the tubes. He was not in good health. He had no money. He was physically weak. Um, And he said, I better do something. And so he went to the payphone, and there was a list of churches. And he said, I need to like somehow find some priest, minister, rabbi who's gonna give me a drunk to try to help because that's what I need to do. And he called all six and the sixth one, he got a pastor who said, I'll get you in touch with this woman, Henrietta. Because, you know, I know like she does, she has this like spiritual group at her house. She may know. So he calls Henrietta, she answers the phone. He says, you know, my name is Bill. I'm in town for business. I'm newly sober. Do you know a drunk that I can help? And she said, we've been expecting you. Right, doesn't that just make you cry? Like we've been expecting you. She knew that her, the prayers were gonna work. So it wasn't like, oh my gosh, like I can't believe God answered our prayers. It's like, yeah, we prayed for help for Bob, didn't know how it would come, but it would come. Because God isn't limited by how we think things will happen, right? She might've thought he's gonna get sober in the Oxford group, but she said, we've been expecting you. And so what happened then? Um, So she invited Bill over and she called Dr. Bob's wife and said, can you bring him over here tomorrow to talk to this guy? And um, Dr. Bob said, fine, but I'm not going for more than 15 minutes. So I actually did a little research today about that first meeting, how Bill prepped for that Starbucks conversation for that first meeting. Um, Bill had talked to doctor, Dr. Silkworth, um, before he left Akron, because he said he wasn't, people weren't getting better. He was trying to help people and they weren't getting better. So they were talking strategy. Um, and so what Dr. Silkworth said, you know, the Oxford group, they come in and they tell you be absolutely honest, absolutely pure, absolutely unselfish and absolutely loving. He says, that this is a very big order. And then you top it off by harping on this mysterious spiritual experience. And like, no wonder all these drunks just get up and walk away. So he said in that book, Varieties of Spiritual Experience, it talks about um, the foundation of most spiritual experiences is ego deflation at great depth. That's at the foundation. And Dr. Young said um, the only hope of salvation is a spiritual experience. And he said, Bill, you've got the cart before the horse. You've got to deflate these people first. So give them the medical business and give it to them hard, right? Now, don't tell anyone, oh, don't worry, you'll get better. Let them know the truth. This is a progressive and fatal illness. So he says, Pour it right into them about the obsession that condemns them to drink and the physical sensitivity or allergy of the body that condemns them to go mad or die if they keep on drinking. Coming from another alcoholic, one alcoholic talking to another, maybe that will crack those tough egos deep down. Only then can you begin to try out your other medicine the ethical principles you've picked up from the Oxford group. So I thought that was really interesting. It's telling us that the first thing we have to do is help someone see that they're powerless. And maybe that's why, you know, going to um, therapists, it doesn't really work. They may tell us stuff and, um, to do, and it doesn't really work. Or just trying a religious route might not work. Like you have to find God because what Dr. Silkworth told him is that basically you need to take a first step first. Admit you're powerless and your life is a total train wreck. That's what, that's what has to be done. So Bill went in there instead of saying, okay, and Bill was in the Oxford groups also, you, know, you have to you know, be this and do this and like get all spiritual. He shared stories about how he used to drink And how he would say, I'm just going to have one. But then he would have, keep drinking until, you know, until he was very drunk, until it was ruining his life. And so he's telling, um, he was telling Bob this. And Bob's like, Yeah, I used to, I used to drink like that too. I did that too. So he went in there saying he was only going to stay for 15 minutes and he ended up staying six hours and 15 minutes. Okay, so it's another thing about Bill. He was willing to put in the time. And then um, he stopped drinking for about three weeks. And then, um, but he then went to a conference and he got drunk again. And again, back in a vision for you, the chapter, it says on page 155, okay, he got it, he saw he was powerless, his life was unmanageable. Then he started to work, then Bill told him about the solution, the spirit, that you have to have a spiritual experience. And he said, okay, I agree, it's necessary, but the price seemed high. So he basically said, I'm willing to do anything except, and for him it was, tell the people, like his patients, the people in town, what his problem was. So we have to ask ourselves, what's my except? I'm willing to do anything except. And Dr. Bob's except got him in trouble because three weeks after he first met Bill, um, he goes and he gets drunk. And very interesting what what Bill does when he gets drunk. So he does not say, I spent three weeks of my life working with you so that you would get better. And how dare you do this to me? Goodbye, I'm going back to Ohio, you know, goodbye and good luck. He didn't. It says um, he took him home, he put him to bed. Think about putting a drunk alcoholic to bed. He stayed with him. and there's an interesting line here, I have to find it. It says that he gave him, he stayed with him and then he gave him one glass of beer the next day. And so I'm thinking, why on earth did he give him that glass of beer the next day? Um, and the reason is Dr. Bob was scheduled to do a surgery that only he could do. This is like a couple of days after he got back from that business trip gone bad. And he was shaking so badly that um, Bill gave him one glass of beer to steady his hand so that he could perform the surgery. So this is not to say that, you know, if so, if we go out, someone goes out and binges, we're supposed to give them like one Milky way the next day. Uh-uh. This was for a very specific person um, and for a specific reason so that his hand wouldn't shake and he did the surgery and it was successful and he never drank again because Right after that surgery, he went around the town and he told all the people he didn't want to tell, I'm an alcoholic. He did the except, the I'll do anything except. And then he became willing to do that. So there he was. And um, he, he never drank again after that. So then he's kind of reminiscing and he says, okay, what someone might ask is what did that man do or say that was different from what others had said or done? Cause you know, we can assume he's read the Bible he's read spiritual literature. He's been around spiritual people. He was a doctor himself. He says "Of far more importance than first there was good information. Um, there's good, and there was love, if you're gonna take a drunk man home and take his shoes off and put him to bed and stay with him. There's love. So good information and love. And he says "Of far more importance was the fact that he was the first living human with whom I had ever talked, who knew what he was talking about in regard to alcoholism from actual experience. In other words, he talked my language. You know, in the one of the forwards or prefaces, it talks about recovery starts when one alcoholic sits down with another. And I think that's because a transmission happens, something more than the conveying of correct information. You know, I looked up the definition of transmission, It says something like heat, light, sound, electricity, or other energy passes through a medium, like bones um, conduct sound waves, right? Right. The bones in our ear transmit sound waves. A phone will transmit sound waves. Here it is like one alcoholic transmitting spiritual health to another, healing hope. And again, if we go back to the page 164, the end of a vision for you, it talks about transmission, right? It says, um, you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him, with God is right. And great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. So see to it that your relationship with God is right. What is that? That's the condition. What does that mean? Well, I think the submission, we have to have submission in order to be able to be a part of transmission, right? We submit so that we can transmit, we submit to God. And then it tells us really what that entails. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Basically give God a blank check with our lives. Admit your faults to him Okay, that's a little hard. And to your fellows, well, that's a lot hard sometimes, right? Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. And then we can transmit. Great events will come to pass for you and countless others. Do you think Bill Wilson knew the countless others he was helping. But look at the work he put in. He got sober himself. He made those calls, you know, six calls. He didn't make two and say, oh, no one's there. I give up. He went over to this strange woman, Henrietta's house. Now it says he was like almost broke, you know, so who knows how he got there. He's there. Before he goes, he calls Dr. Silkworth to brainstorm on the best way to help this guy who he's never met. And then he spends six over six hours with him that day, stays in that town to help this guy for three weeks. And then when the guy breaks his heart coming home drunk, when he finally thinks I helped someone, he keeps helping. Great events will come to pass for you and countless others. And there's 162 of us here who wouldn't have been here if bill didn't do what they what he'd done and you know every now and then someone will say something bad about bill wilson like oh he did this thing that wasn't right and what i say is like first i don't know and i don't care but look what bill did for me for you for us that's what we should think of when we think of bill wilson so back to our text page 180 um Dr. Bob is saying, it's a most wonderful blessing to be relieved of the terrible curse with which I was afflicted. My health is good. So remember, it wasn't, but now it is. He's regained his self-respect and the respect of others. His home life is ideal. And before his wife had been um, on the verge of a nervous breakdown, of course, 17 years married to an alcoholic. And my business is as good as can be expected in these uncertain times. We can have all these gifts even in uncertain times during COVID, during you know, this heartbreaking war that's going on, we can still have blessings. And he says he spends a great deal of time passing this on to others who want and need it badly. And he says he does it for four reasons a sense of duty, right? We're, we're obligated, we feel an obligated to, it is a pleasure. And I think that's interesting, first like a duty because the truth is sometimes, you know, I'll admit it, sometimes I don't wanna pick up the phone. I don't wanna take the time. You know, I, you know, God hasn't 100% finished on me yet. My heart isn't 100% selfish, unselfish yet. So sometimes I do it just out of duty. But the second reason, it is a pleasure. The more we grow spiritually, the more what we have to do and what we want to do become the same. So the more we grow spiritually, the more what we have to do and what we want to do become the same. Then he says three, because in doing so, I'm paying my debt to the man who took time to pass it on to me. Right. Gratitude. Gratitude is demonstrable. And I have to tell you, when I see my sponsees, when I hear them talking or when I see them sponsoring, it just makes my heart light up with joy. And he says, four, because every time I do it, I take out a little more insurance for myself against a possible slip. It's our best insurance policy, right? Chapter seven, first line says, nothing will so much ensure immunity. Against alcoholism or compulsive eating, as intensive work with other alcoholics or compulsive eaters. Intensive work. So, then Dr. Bob says he still had craving um, for two and a half years, but he wasn't near yielding. So it was like temptation, but but he could resist. And so, what did he do? You know, when he's when he, you know he didn't have a self pity party. And we know for us, self pity parties end with a cake. And um, he said, when he saw his friends drinking and knew he couldn't, he schooled himself to believe that though he once had the same privilege, he abused it so frightfully it was withdrawn. So we can do that. We can say to ourselves, like self, I used to have the privilege to be able to do whatever. But just like if you get in too many car accidents, your privilege to have a driver's license is withdrawn. My privilege to do whatever is withdrawn. And then he just starts talking to, you know, hard talking. If you think you're an atheist, an agnostic, a skeptic, or have any other form of intellectual pride, which keeps you from accepting what's in this book, I feel sorry for you. So it's interesting. He calls atheism, agnosticism, and skepticism into forms of intellectual pride, me thinking I can do it on my own. And I love how he says, if you think you're an atheist or an agnostic, if you think you are, it's like, because you're really not. And I guess it would be like me thinking, you know what? I have like no lungs inside of myself. Now I could think it, right? This is America. I'm free to think what I want. So I could think I'm a lung atheist. I don't believe I have lungs, it doesn't matter. And our book tells us on page 55, deep down in every man, woman, and child is the fundamental idea of God. So between those two lungs that God gave me, God put the fundamental idea of himself. And it says, it may be obscured, but it's there. And, you know, we could talk about this for for hours. We've got um, podcasts on the chapter, We Agnostics, Finding God, Step 2. So we um, we go into this in depth. But for now, just suffice it to say that Dr. Bob just basically says, you may think you are, but you're not. And it's almost like an invitation. Don't have so much pride that, that you let that block you. And he says, if you think you're strong enough to do it your way, that's your affair. Like, we're not going to try and convince you you really need this. But if you really want to quit for good and all, not just to look good for your high school reunion. So that boy who dumped you when you were 17, you know, feels bad for good and all and feel you need help. He says, we know we have an answer for you. And then here's his conditional promise. It never fails It's a promise if so here's the condition we have to meet. If you go about it with one half the zeal, you've been in the habit of showing when you were getting another drink. So next time our sponsor asks us to do something that we think is hard, we think, would I have done this if it was to get myself you know, some food? If we do this work, we are promised, promised, it will never fail. And on the last line, he tells us why. Because our heavenly father will never let us down. God will never let us down. And with that, I pass.